0: You know, I'm a Democrat. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Republicans are gonna be the ones that are kind of against me and I have to worry about them. Prize, the pushback came from the gay people in the Democratic Party here.
1: Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the very first episode of the AI Because the System Podcast. AI Decodes the System is a series of podcast interviews with industry experts and everyday people who will help explain topics related to policy, tech, data, law, and other current issues that matter to you all. The goal of this podcast is to help close the knowledge gap in a world where misinformation is growing and to decode the system. Sit back and enjoy the show. Since elections are still on our minds, I wanted my first guest to be... Kojo Asama Caesar, who is the first Ghanaian American to run for Congress in the nation, first ever Black person to win a nomination in his district, first ever first-generation American in his district, and the youngest ever Democratic nominee in Oklahoma's first congressional district. Not to mention, he ran in a district that represents Tulsa, Oklahoma in the midst of a pandemic. Hello, Kojo. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Amber. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be your first, first guest.
1: Thank you. I had to have you first. just want you to know that all the things that Kojo has done and all those firsts, it really uh, was important for me to, to really talk to you, especially coming out of elections and everything that we've seen go on. And even as I watched your campaign from afar, it was really important that I got to sit down and talk with you. So I know it's been a long time since we've seen each other in person. So what have you been up to?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I remember um, being a young buck coming to ODU orientation, and you were an orientation counselor and showing us the ropes. Um, so I always have appreciated your mentorship and leadership and example. Um, but yeah, since graduating from ODU, I went on to law school at the College of Woman Mary, graduated law school, and then made what a lot of my friends and family thought was a crazy decision. And became a garden teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, and so yeah, I landed here in a place um, called Greenwood, historic Black Wall Street, and taught kindergarten and taught third grade, and um, have just been embedded in this community and trying to make a difference and help kids and families be able to achieve their full potential, um, and and then I just came off of running for Congress, so. Been doing quite a lot. I've gotten married also and I'm a seven-month-old um, baby girl. So yeah, a lot has been going on.
1: Yeah, you you have the epitome of all new things have happened since, since we last seen each other. And I think you also won Teacher of the Year, right? Or something like that?
0: I did. I did. I did win Teacher of the Year at my school site. Um, I've also gone on to be a founding school principal. So we founded an elementary school here in North Tulsa. And then I served as an executive director of a um, business incubator in town also. And then there's
1: something about a a bookstore or coffee shop.
0: Yeah. So my wife, the real star of the family, she opened her very own business, uh, Fulton Street Books and Coffee. It's a bookstore and coffee shop and um, embedded in this community. And it's just doing amazing things.
1: I'm just so in awe, like I watch from a distance on Instagram and look at all the things that are going on with you. And I'm just so happy to see just how you've developed as a leader, as a person, and as someone that we all can look up to. Thank you so much for being here once again. So you know the show is called AI Decodes the System because we want to break down different topics related to policy, technology, data law, and then other relevant things that don't fit into those buckets. So let's talk policy first and about why you decided to run for Congress, one of the biggest policy policymakers of them all, right? Like the top dogs in this game. And you did this as a Democrat in a district with two characteristics that I find very interesting. So one, since 1945, only one Democrat has served more than one term in the district. And it has been represented by Republicans since, I think, 1987. And then two, The district is home to the Tulsa Race Massacre, Mm -hmm. which occurred almost 100 years ago. Kojo, why on earth did you want to run as a congressman in that district? And what type of policy did you want to impose or impact?
0: Yeah, no, that's a really great question, right? Um, I was teaching and I was focused on education and um, I was teaching mostly black and brown kids. What I came to realize very quickly was that One, there's nothing wrong with our kids. Our kids are smart, they're brilliant, they're resilient. Let's all get out. The issue was with our elected leaders and the environment that they had created um, for our kids. And so here in Oklahoma, we're 49th in the nation in education funding. Since 2008, we lead the nation in cuts to our education budget. Oh, wow. Six years, we've lost over 30,000 teachers Right. And, and just the, the data points go on and on. But our elected are basically failing our students. They're failing our teachers. They're actively defunding our education system. So as a teacher, as a principal, a school leader, it didn't matter how hard you worked. Right. Um, it's just the odds were just stacked against us. And so there came a time where I just had to, you know, I got tired of complaining and I realized Superman wasn't coming to save us. Nobody else. And, you know, you have to tap yourself on the shoulder. And if nobody else is going to do it, then you got to step up and try to do it. So I really wanted to um, use the position to really go over the heads of our state leaders and, one, bring federal dollars, much-needed federal dollars, to our education system to fund early childhood education, um, to make it easier for parents to afford child care, to pay our teachers what they work so we can keep our oh. birth and brightest and, and um attract, you know, um, talented people into our education system and then compel our leaders to adequately fund our education Mm -hmm. system. So that was my main, main focus. But I think also my background as in children of immigrants, Uh, I think it was January 2018. I was a principal at the time and I wasn't really keeping up with politics, but there was a news report that stopped me in my tracks and it was the president of the United States in the Oval Office, wondering aloud to his staff how come we weren't getting more immigrants from the Nordic countries like Norway or Sweden? And instead, we were stuck with immigrants from um, shithole countries, his words, not um, uh, from Africa. And he was talking about me. He was talking about my parents, right? And I just felt like that was such a, you know, so wrong, right? Because immigrants contribute so much to this country, right? It's not just mooching off the system. Here I was, I was a children of immigrants and I was, instead of practicing law, I was, you know, in Oklahoma teaching and trying to make place a better place for all of us. And so I felt that um, there was a place for me to step into the political fray and um, tell a different story about what truly makes America great. That was
1: great to hear you say that. Um, so I think sometimes people don't think about how the words that come out of different political offices actually impact the individual and how you as a first-generation American like felt that coming at you because it was and how you interpreted that for yourself. Like, Thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of times we forget that and we just see a tweet that's offensive or see something that comes out of these high offices that's very offensive and then we kind of turn our head to it and we keep moving, but right. that's not the way it should be, right? Because it is impacting someone that, that impacted you. Yeah. And what I'm thankful for is it impacted you in a way to move and to, and to jump forward into action. Like, I love the fact that I, when I watch your campaign from afar, I'm a, impressed by a few data points that really hit home for me. So one, you won the Democratic primary mm-hmm. with all those firsts we listed before, first Black, first um, generation American. Uh, first um, person who lives in North Tulsa. Like there was a lot of firsts you had just by winning that primary. And then we go on into the actual general election and you won 32% of the vote in a general election. I think it was a total of like 109,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And I believe you're the first Democrat in the district to receive that many votes ever, if my research is correct. And the other crazy part about that, another data point is that you only raise a little under, I think, $200,000. That is impressive because if you do the math, that's less than $2 per vote. Where we see candidates spending so much money on um, marketing and things out there and, and running their campaigns to get people to vote for them, you only spent $2 per vote compared to your Republican opponent, who was the incumbent, right? And he spent twice as much per vote. It's crazy, right? How did you as a new person to Tulsa, relatively new to Tulsa, had never ran for elected office, how are you able to do that? Like that is amazing.
0: Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for for sharing that um, and for doing the research. You know, part of it was um, the benefit of inexperience, an right? And so, um, not ever having done this before, um, I didn't know that I couldn't do it, and so, and I went, I just left into this. Mm. I said, representative democracy, it's one person, one vote. And so let me go straight to the people. So we announced this campaign November 5th of 2019. So we gave ourselves a full year and focused on it full time. And we we announced the 50 and 50 initiative on the first day we announced, which was going to be we're we're holding 50 public events in the first 50 days of the campaign, all of the district to meet people, introduce ourselves to them, and then listen. So we did that. And it was amazing, and we gained so much traction from the start and momentum. And people got to know me. You know, I shared my family background, my story, my values, right. and how I arrived at my policy stances. And then I listened, and I asked people to do the same thing. And so we were able to truly build this kind of authentic, emotional connection to voters on the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say this too: I was expecting. You know, I'm a Democrat, so. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Republicans are going to be the ones that are kind of against me and I have to worry about them. And But after I gained a lot of traction on the ground, to uh-huh. my surprise, the pushback came from the gatekeepers in the Democratic Party here, right? So
1: mm.
0: these mm-hmm. folks are now saying, well, who's this guy? We don't know him. Where are right. he come from? How come he didn't come and kiss the ring, right? How come he didn't come and ask for permission? Mm-hmm. So- actually very disconcerting. It was something that I wasn't affecting at all. I thought, oh, the Democratic Party, that's my party. They're going to support me. They're going to be excited for they like me coming along, right? And then I heard, you know, certain statements being made like, we don't think Kojo's a face that Oklahoma's can get behind. And so it was very disconcerting. But on the positive side, it freed me. It freed me from having to, okay, fine. If those folks aren't for me, if the big money people are not for me, I'm just going to rely on Grassroots and the people, right? So I just doubled down on a grassroots campaign and speaking to the people and speaking honestly and genuinely about the issues that they care about. That's amazing. Um, and so that really goes to show you at the end of the day, we do know that money is, you know, makes a big impact in campaigns. Unfortunately, you need a whole lot of money. Very true. We can't forget it's one person, one vote, and it's about getting the votes. And even if you have a lot of money, how are you using that money? to reach people on the ground, to translate that into votes, right? Um, so that that's what's about the people, no matter, you know, how you look at it. You
1: said a lot of nuggets there, and I want to hit on a couple. The first one was when you said that the Democratic Party came to you and basically was like, who is this guy? Once they realize, right, you have traction, right? Because a lot of people can run... Um, In in the primaries, Mm -hmm. but once they started to see that you had traction, that whole idea of there's a gatekeeper that has to open that door to let that person in. And one thing I admired about your campaign is that you were very unconventional when it came to how you dealt with the party. And that was just me watching from a distance. So if I'm wrong, correct me. But you dealt with it in a different way. And I really think you understood that whole grassroots piece. But I think the listeners don't understand that no matter what office you're running for and no matter which party you're running for, there is a door. There's oftentimes where people say there's a line and you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to hop in front of that line. Like Literally, there's people who run for office and there's like a uh, line of people of who should go next. And when you start to disrupt that, that becomes an issue. How are you able to or navigate that or tell our listeners what you learned from that and how you plan to move forward and also what you run again?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I guess now having gone through that process, I now understand, right, that mm-hmm. this isn't just uh anybody, you know, can just raise their hand and run at any time that they want to. I mean, it should be. That's what it should be. Right. But unfortunately, that's not what it is. There are gatekeepers like in any industry or any endeavor. um, And there are people who are planning to run for a lot of these high offices. Right. And so certain people who have been planning for this for a long time. So when somebody comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden builds excitement on the ground and you have to understand you're upsetting somebody else's plans. All right. Right. Um, And it's fine if you want to do that. But just know that you're doing it. Know the rules. Um, before you break the rules, right? So you can say heartache um, from that. But I do think I want to encourage people, like you should not, this is a democracy. It's a representative democracy. The people get to decide who they want to represent them, all right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I will always defend anybody's right, any citizen, any neighbor to put themselves up for, you know, as I'm running for office. That That's how it should be. And especially if you have a minority or person of color, young person who's decided to put their career Mm -hmm. on hold and sacrifice hard, like we should be supporting that person, right? We shouldn't be chiding them for daring to run. Um, And we need to make it easier for people like me to run. I was really perplexed by that reaction. And I want to be the kind of person that empowers young people to run for office rather than putting more barriers in their way. And so I'm going to keep speaking out against kind of this gatekeeper mentality. It's not it's not right, and especially not right when it's against marginalized people already,
1: you know? That definitely makes sense. And the other piece that you hit on, I think... A lot of people don't realize how much money is in politics. They see like the presidential election where we're at over a billion, I think, at this point, spent on elections. Right. But they don't think about like even uh, federal level, state level, local level. There's mm-hmm. still six figures to seven figures that are being spent on those elections, which often right. keeps certain people out of out of the conversation, right? Keep certain people yep. out of the democratic process. One thing I loved about your campaign was you raised two hundred thousand compared to the Republican candidate who raised. A million but he only spent i think around seven hundred thousand. so even if we look at his mm-hmm. raise his raise would have pushed up how much money he had to even get more votes but you were able right. to do an amazing amount of work with what seemingly compared to an incumbent's um budget it was not a lot of money like two hundred thousand dollars is not a lot of money in campaigns right. so what is your advice when people are thinking about running when they have no money like, do they need to build a network? Like, do they need to go to packs? Like, what is your whole philosophy on how you do this uh, in the grassroots way that you did?
0: Yeah, you know, coming out of this, I realized there are three M's that are very important. Um, it's messenger, message, and moment. All right, uh, and then, and so I guess a fourth M. So I think first and foremost you have to ask yourself am I the right messenger all right so am I the right person to be running at all and then second m is message what is my message all right um to the people and why should people vote for me why should they be excited about somebody like me representing them all right and the third m is what is the moment and does My message matched the moment that we're in, whether as a community, as a district, as a nation, right, what the political moment is. And I think if all those three things align, then you have a chance to really, right, build some momentum, be able to get some money from somewhere, right, whether it's from the grassroots, whether it's from the political establishment, whether it's from, you know, the opposite party who wants the incumbency out, right? Right. Um, I think if those three things align, mm-hmm. then you can do it. So I think a lot of times before people run, they look at how much money they don't have, and they're not they don't have a huge network. But if you're the right messenger with the right message at the right moment, that in itself can attract the money and the momentum, and you know you can actually uh, be able to build a campaign off of that.
1: I love that. And the part I love is that you're speaking from experience and you actually did it, right? You're not the guy who's telling everyone else what to do and haven't not done that. You did exactly that. Um, So I really appreciate that and really appreciate you for sharing that with the audience. Now, I want to shift a little bit, and this is going to get into a little bit of a tough conversation um, for those who are listening. Uh, It's not about data. It's not about technology. It's not about policy. It's not about law. It's about race. So one of the things that adds an extra layer to the race that Kojo won is that the district is home to the Tulsa race massacre that occurred to an area called Greenwood, a.k.a. Black Wall Street, almost 100 years ago. Actually, 100 years next year. Mm -hmm. Kojo, can you tell us a little about the history and why you decided to move to and run in a place that is still healing from those riots?
0: Yeah, so Black Wall Street, Greenwood in the early 1900s, was the wealthiest African-American community in the nation, all right? Um, In a time of Jim Crow segregation and lynching and oppression um, in the South, these Black people built a community that had its own banking system, small business network, um, its own school system, transportation network. Uh, had six private jets in a state that only had one airport all right so this was oh, wow. black excellence all right um embodied and um unfortunately on um, May 31st and June 1st of um 1921 um, the white community here in Tulsa Oklahoma out of an abundance of envy and jealousy burned down Greenwood and Black Wall Street mm-hmm. and Killed as many as three hundred people, burned down the businesses and all that. Right, and um, black folks had to flee, and so that is the tragic right story of Black Wall Street. Right. This story of black success in the midst of right um, insurmountable odds, and then white supremacy coming to crush that success. But you know the the silver lining in the stories that they rebuilt, they came back. They were resilient. That resilience still can be felt in this community to this day. And they rebuilt this community. And actually, 1941, not 1921, was the height of economic success on Greenwood. Oh, wow. uh, but then, unfortunately, you had um, integration and then you had urban renewal and urban removal. And that finally kind of put the death knell in the community. And now North Tulsa which um, is where I live, which is where Teach for America sent me when I asked them to send me where the need was highest. All right? It's now a very poor community, low income, high poverty. The life expectancy in North Tulsa, historic Greenwood, is 10 years less than in South Tulsa, which oh, wow. is mostly Caucasian. All right? um, and so, so yeah, so it's sad. It's a sad story, but it's also very inspirational because now we have mm-hmm. something to look to. We have a legacy um, which we can work to reclaim. And, um, and so we're very inspired by that here. And we're working, um, as you said, we're commemorating 100 years next year. And we're working to ensure that the next 100 years is better than the previous 100 years.
1: That is amazing. And thank you for sharing that story. I know a lot of people didn't even realize that the Tulsa race massacre occurred. I probably learned about it after I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Oklahoma as a young person. Because oh, wow. uh, my parents were in the military. Okay. So I hadn't even heard about it until like after I graduated from college. So I think with social media and things like that, more people are starting to learn about the different Black Wall Streets that existed, whether it was in Tulsa, things that were occurring in Durham and other places that were thriving. Right. Um, But the piece about it that's interesting that you hit on, they had actually higher uh, outcomes in 1941 post-riot, but then you see these different policies right, Right. coming into place that actually change the dynamics of that community. And I don't know if people realize how much policy impacts things from redlining, from different things that... Integration in ways that takes from different communities or um, funding certain areas over uh, other areas and what that looks like or displacing people from their homes in in the effort to build up economic mobility or to build up the economy of the area. Yeah. These things are all in effect of policy. Right. And that's one reason why I really want to do this show is because I think a lot of times people don't think about how important it is even just for voting. How that literally who you vote for determines the different policies that are going to be put in place. And I think the story you just told of Tulsa, right? We can talk about the racism issues and all that. But when we go to the actual underlining piece of what happened after that mm-hmm. racial incident occurred, it was policy on top of policy on top of policy. And even today, we're trying to break through that in so many cities, so many communities across the country. And I don't want to ignore the race issue because that's something you also dealt with in this race, right? There were two events that occurred that I really want to talk to you about. One involved the head of HR at a local church who actually sent a message to you, I believe, or sent a message to someone. And in that message, it said, go back to whatever, or Kojo said, go back to whatever country he came Mm -hmm. from, paraphrasing. And in the second, after one of your morning runs, you were outside and sitting on Standpipe Hill, which is an area where you normally reflect after your runs, and it's owned by Oklahoma State University, Tulsa, and police were called on you for trespassing or so-called breaking the law. Now, I want you to tell folks a little bit about each of the incidents, but what I really want you to dig into is how you use technology, specifically social media, to highlight and address both of these issues. As a person who was sitting back watching, to be honest, when I first saw you write the post about the gentleman from the church, I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how this is going to work. I was like, I'm going to have to sit back and watch this one because I was like, wow, that's powerful. That's dynamic. Like you put it on social media and like the post of what the person said. And I remember reading the comments and I was like, I want to watch what happens with this. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, I wonder... Back up a little bit. Okay. So um, when I arrived on Black Wall Street and that was the first time I actually learned about the history of Black Wall Street mm-hmm. and I was so embarrassed because I went through my whole education career and didn't learn about this history. And then come to find out there were people who grew up right here in Tulsa who also didn't know the history, who hadn't learned it in school, right? Wow. And so this history was intentionally hidden, right? So that that's one. And in terms of the policies that really perpetuate this right here, there's a highway that's built right through the community here in historic black wall street, right. Just mm-hmm. as in a lot of different cities, you know, in black community,
1: yeah, know <laughs> right. You
0: know, um, so that, you know, I guess white people didn't have to drive through that community on their way to work. Right. And then literally there's MLK Boulevard is the main street through the black community here. But when you reach downtown it literally switches and the street becomes Cincinnati instead of MLK. It was so shocking to me when I got here, basically MLK is only good for the black part of town is what their community. And then there are literal train tracks that divide North Tulsa from the rest of Tulsa. And, And it's so segregated here. So it's just crazy stuff like that. Right? So that's that, that's the environment we're operating in. And then here you have this black guy who's the first person coming out of Black Wall Street to run for this office and to win the nomination, all right? And so you can only imagine a lot of the messages that I was getting. I was just getting a lot of hate mail um, and a lot of hateful messages. And after the primary, we decided to start sharing a few of these messages. We didn't share a whole bunch, but just sharing a few just so people could understand and see what was going on behind, you know, closed doors and how this was actually affecting. Our political discourse, uh-huh. right, um, and our ability to move forward together. And so, yeah, so it was in the midst of this that we got this message from this guy telling, saying that Code should go back to whatever country he came from. And we were just joking as a campaign team, like, oh, we should report him to his employer. So one of my staffers looked at where he works at. He's like, oh, he works at... Um, Victory Church, and that's significant because Victory is like a mega church, right? So it's a huge church here in Oklahoma. And you know, Oklahoma is the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, we have more than anybody else. And this church is very influential, it's a global ministry. They serve missions and are represented by a hundred nations and all that. So, um, so wow, we're like Victory Church, and then we're like, okay, let's let's in- report him to the HR person over there. Come to find out. He is the HR head over there, right? So that was just crazy to us. And we're like, oh, this is, we just have to share this. And so we weren't expecting the response it got, but once we shared it, it just spread like wildfire. And the, it was probably the farthest reach of any post we ever shared over 100,000 people on Facebook. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and And so that precipitated a reaction from the church, right? And so, the pastor of the church reached out to me and his initial uh, message was, you know, we're sorry, Kojo, that this happened. This is out of character for this individual. He's never said anything like this in front of anybody before. And then also, this is not representative of our church and what we stand for. But Kojo, know that this will be dealt with internally. And we are going to deal with mm-hmm. it. So that was the message. I wasn't satisfied with that. Oh, and then it he sounded ed- like boilerplate.
1: What right. you saying if you mess up, yeah. Exactly. And
0: then he said, We would love to I'd love to meet you and shake your hand, you know, and you know, whatever. Have coffee. And I was like, Hey, like, yeah, I would love to meet, but before we meet, um, I want you to do three things, right? That will signal to me and the public that this is actually genuine and not like PR. And so I ask for three things, all beginning with an A. The first thing, A, is acknowledgement. The second A is apologize. And the third A is atone. All right. So first one, acknowledge, is I want you to acknowledge that the words that he used were racist trope. All right. And they've been used historically to demean, diminish, and disqualify certain groups of people from fully participating in our democracy. All right. So acknowledge that. Second thing, you have to apologize, not just to me, but to all the other people, the, right. the, the staff, the parishioners, all the countries you represent, those people who've seen this message and it's offensive to them. All right. And so I apologize to them. And then the third thing is atone. You have to, upon deep self-reflection, engage in a um, in a gesture. All right, that signifies to the people you're apologizing to that your apology is indeed heartfelt. All right, so I'm not telling you what to do, but you have to do some soul searching and then you have to do something that signals that this apology is real. So, to his credit, the pastor's credit, he did that. He acknowledged this, he apologized, and then he decided they were gonna fire this individual, right? Um, and so after he did that- No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he did. He let he let the guy, his name was John Brown, um, let him go. And so after he did that and shared all those things publicly, I was like, okay, fine, we can meet. Um, so we ended up meeting and it was a great, great conversation. And it opened up the door for us to talk about, right, the state of our city and how we bring people together. And also as a result of me sharing that message, because this church has been here for 40 years, they not only have the church, they also have a school, a K through 12 school and a college. So they're very influential here, but a whole lot of people sent our campaign messages sharing one, how thankful they were for us engaging in this dialogue. And then two, sharing messages that they had heard and teachers that have told them all these different things. Yeah. There's a lot of trauma that people have gone through. So it opened the door for us to share those things with the pastor as well. Um, And, and he, said he was gonna, you know, work to address those things. And his parents actually found him in the church, and he's only been pastors for the last five years. So it's like, I read that there's a lot that happened before me, and I'm working to try to make things right, all right? Um, and so, yeah, so that was awesome, and it was a great start. And then the the clincher was that it turns out that me and John Brown, the the individual who made the comments, we have a mutual friend, mm. right? um, a friend who was a professor at ORU and John Brown sat on the board of trustees at ORU and you know was friends with this guy. So um he actually said he reached out to John Brown and told John Brown that he knew me and I was a good guy and I was a Christian and all that. And once he told John Brown that John Brown felt very remorseful and said, oh, can you please set up a meeting mm-hmm. with me and CoJo because I want to apologize. Um, and so so my our, our mutual friend set up this meeting and me and John Brown met at a coffee shop. And and he did. He did apologize. And he said, you know, I'm an HR head and usually I'm complaining about how this job is about changing adult diapers. And here I am having to change my own diaper. And he didn't have excuses. He just said he was it was stupid of him to say what he said and all those sort of things. And so, yeah, as a Christian that I am, I I accepted his apology and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, also told him about my feelings, right, about what he said and historically what those words represent to people like me right. um, and the kind of behavior change we need moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a productive conversation. And um, I said, I hope this is just the beginning and not an end. And so, yeah, so that's what it became. And then, you know, it became a new story. And that got reported, too. Until, Through this, we got to also set an example for the rest of the city about how to deal with these instances when they arise, because this is not the first time, and it's not going to be the last time something like this happens.
1: I love that story, and I didn't even know all the details, because again, I was watching from a distance with social media and news articles, right? Mm -hmm. I remember seeing the picture of of you sitting with the pastor and some of his staff, like y'all were in the coffee shop, and then Mm -hmm. I saw the picture of, of John Brown. And I knew immediately who it was without knowing who it was. Um, And I was like, wow, that's the gentleman who this all started because of. And it was just amazing to me that you weren't about the cancel culture, right? You went in saying, this is what it is. Let's actually find some resolution at the end of this. And I feel like you helped us set an example for how some of that healing can happen in a place that has so much So many issues when it comes to race, especially with the history there, like that history. Not to say it's not everywhere because it is, right? But Mm -hmm. with that, with the race massacres and knowing how sensitive that topic is when it comes to racism, racial healing, and bringing folks together, you provided an example of that, and then we did it again. (laughs) Can you explain the second situation? I'm sure there was others, but the other big one when it came to the police officers who approached you after your morning run.
0: Yeah. So um, there's this hill. Called Standpipe Hill here in Greenwood, and Standpipe Hill—if you've watched um, Lovecraft Cant- Country, um, mm-hmm. one of the elements in that um, series, because Standpipe Hill was where Greenwood made its last stand uh, during the massacre. Actually, had basically like you know the Jango Unchained uh, of Greenwood, you know, basically trying to make a last stand to defend their land. Wow. Unfortunately, right, they weren't successful. And they were outgunned and outmanned. Um, but like now, fast forward 99 years, and this hill is part of OSU Tulsa, and they own the land. As a matter of fact, OSU Tulsa owns much of the land that used to be Black Wall Street, all right. And um, so this hill, it's a beautiful hill. It overlooks the city, right? Um, it's a place that a lot of people go, um, and it's just a quiet place. And as a campaign ritual, I've been waking up early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. I'll do my to run and I'll go up to this hill and I'll just sit there and reflect. And it's just a great place to reflect and um, reflect on the history and the future and what we're trying to accomplish. Right. Well, on this one particular morning, um, it was right after the campaign um, and it was the first time i had been up there since the campaign was over. And, yeah, I had police officer, you know, come. To the foot of the hill, call me all the way down, and then tell me that they got a call, uh, and that this is private property, and that the owners don't want anybody up there. Right? Which is crazy to me. And so I was like, "We got a call." He's like, "Yep, yeah, we got a call, and we don't want you up here." And it was just a in the face, especially after going through this campaign, you know, and for you to be told by an officer basically that you're not, you don't belong here, leave. Right, it's, it's like it's it's almost metaphoric, you know. Um, and, um So, so I wasn't even gonna say anything because he was like, "Whatever, man, just you know, keep it going." But then, about two days later, I was running with you know my buddies, and we ran past Standpipe Hill, and I told them the story, and literally, stop. They stopped me. They're like, "We got to stop this run. Hold on, What? What happened?" Right. Um. And so it just I saw how it deeply affected them, right? Because as black people, what we want to know that we belong, right? And when you're you suffer these indignities and these messages from the dominant culture that says you are a second class citizen, you are less than, you don't belong, right? That hits home, you know. So it's not just some incident or somebody telling you to get down some stupid hill. It's a message that is being driven home that you don't belong here, right? Um mm-hmm. uh, and and so when I saw their reaction to it, I was like, okay, I think I do have to share this because it's 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 deeper than just, you know, me. Uh and so yeah, so I did share it. And um once again, you know, it touched the nerve in a lot of people. And to OSU's um, credit, they responded right away and they said, Let's have a meeting and we want to meet, you know, the president wants to meet you, the vice president, the chief. Oh, wow. Um yeah, so we met. And we had a really, really great conversation and they apologized. They said, you know, it is public property. The officer was mistaken. You are allowed there. And matter of fact, we are going to train our officers and teach them the history of, you know, Black Wall Street and allow that to inform how they police. We're going to change our orientation and how we orient our students so that, all our staff and incoming students as part of the orientation will learn about the history of black wall street. Now you would think that they would already be doing this, but
1: um, (laughs) I was wondering, but you said it. (laughs) They're not right.
0: They're not doing this already. Uh, And then third, third thing, what was the third? I forget what the third thing. Well, yeah, but a lot of good things came out of this and um, they really decided, Hey, we have to, because I also said, look, there's a hundred year anniversary coming up. We've had, an HBO series called Watchmen that highlighted Black Wall Street. We've had Lovecraft Country that highlighted Black Wall Street. LeBron James is doing a documentary on Black Wall Street. Russell Westbrook is doing a documentary. Oprah and John Legend are thinking about doing one. So like next year, there's going to be a whole lot more Black people coming here and they're going to be all over the place, right? And so if your officers are not ready, if your university is not ready to engage with these people and answer some hard questions, like you're going to be in... In for a time, right? So I think they realize that the administration realizes that, and um, they're they're willing to work hard to ensure that they're on the right side of history moving forward. Um, and so, once again, it was a conversation starter and a way to mm-hmm. challenge institutions here who haven't been challenged this way in the past, and quite frankly, aren't ready for the smoke. Um, but hopefully, through these <laughs> conversations, they'll they can get ready.
1: I admire you. I admire the work you've done. And I, I really want the listeners to understand that for me, let me rewind a little bit. So for me, when I see people on social media calling folks out and all this stuff, I look at it and I'm like, what, what else? What's next? Like after you call everyone out mm-hmm. and after you do all that, what are you actually going to do? Because I feel like social media gives space to what they call slacktivists, so or people who are just behind the computer Saying all these things about the rest of the world, but they're not doing anything. What I love about what you did was you put it out there for a reason with a purpose and a method, and you actually caused change to start, right? Right. And even as you're approaching, and Tulsa's approaching that 100 year, like I really see you as a voice that's going to really help to even improve that dialogue further. And it's amazing how like you went from running for Congress in the height of a pandemic, you had so many first, first black, first, first generation, first Ghanaian American to run for Congress. Like I need everyone to understand that. Yeah. Like not just in Oklahoma, but in the country, if I'm not you yeah. know, correct. Yeah. Um, you were in a Republican district in a place where less than a hundred years ago, up to 300 people lost their lives due to racism. Mm-hmm. Like that is so much, that is so much that's happening there. And then on top of that, You went and continued to show that there's these issues that we're still dealing with in that area Mm -hmm. um, and that you highlighted them. And then you were open to actually having conversations, actually doing the work and actually getting out there and putting your money where your mouth is, right? Right. If you just posted it and nothing happened after that, that doesn't do anything, right? You actually did the work. So I want to thank you for doing the work. And I want to thank you for helping us understand what it took to run for office and your dedication to bridging that divide that's happening in in Tulsa. And also you ran on the whole platform of bridging the divide for the country Mm -hmm. due to what's happening with the Republican and Democratic parties. So I know today we touched on a lot, um, but we really touched on a little bit of policy, a little bit of technology and how you use that, the data points that really drove um, what you were doing and how the law impacts us all. Mm -hmm. I have one last question. What do you think is important for people to understand when it relates to how these different systems work?
0: Man. I mean, there's a lot, right? There's there's a lot there. Um, and also that's part of how you have to move. There is, We live in the big world, a whole lot of things happening in this world, right? And no one person is going to, quote, unquote, save the world, right? But we all have right. a role to play, right? And so that's what we have to know. You are important. Your voice matters. Your lived experience matters, all right? And you have a role to play. Superman is not coming to save us. If you're a Christian, (laughs) you know that Jesus already came to save us. So so it's about what are we going to do, right? Um, And how can we make a difference while we're here and leave our community better than we found it, right? And since having a child, it's even gotten, you know, even that much more important for me in terms of thinking about the kind of world that we're building for the next generation and I would mm. be a positive influence on that world, right? And so part of what you talk about, instead of just canceling people, you know, I want to not only call people out, but call them in, all right? Um, mm-hmm. And in service of change. And I think Nelson Mandela is one who said, both the oppressor and the oppressed need healing, all right? Um, right? And he said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, all right? And so I realized that it is, like, There have been people who've done a lot of jacked up stuff and, you know, we don't just want to paper it over. We want truth and reconciliation. Right. Right? And so, yeah. So I think we all have to choose our role and then just play that to the best of our ability. And, you know, it's easy to build walls. I say it's easy to build walls. It's a lot harder to build bridges. All right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so how can you engage with people? in a way that truly says, I'm going to be the mature person. I'm going to be the more evolved person. Because we see what happens when we have an immature, unevolved person in a position of leadership, like our president, right? Everything goes to crap. Um, and so it's hard. It's always, it's hard, always trying to be the bigger person. Um, but we have to think about our future and the kind of world we're trying to build and just keep working um, and if we play our role, then others can also play their role. And all these things, you know, technology, law, policy, story, values, they all come together um, you know, to help us. They're the tools that we use to try to make the change that we want to see. Um, so so that that's kind of my message. And, you know, just get in the game. Um, you know, this is not a spectator sport. Um, if, you're, <laughs> if you're not at the table, you're on the menu for real, for real. Oh, wow, uh, Yeah. <laughs> And so, so, yeah, so we all have to get in the game. And I am, you know, I am through this process. I'm like, I'm going to run again. Um, that's what everybody's telling me. Coach, you can't go away. Oh, yeah, you can't go anywhere. We, we need we need what you have to offer. And a lot of people like, I can't wait to, you know, vote for you again. But now it's just about, okay, what office is going to be, right? And I have to look at the political mm-hmm. landscape. I have to look at the data I have to you know decode the data like you're doing. Uh, there we go, and mm-hmm. and say okay, where where did we make a lot of gains, uh, and where can we kind of build on those gains, right? Um, and maybe it's another office, and maybe it's another geographic you know area where most of our supporters are, and where we can actually win. Cause at the end of the day, I'm in this to win as well, right? We're not in this right, to right? Room, right. right? We're not here making money to not, not win, <laughs>
1: do right? Raising money to not win, yeah,
0: right? You know, so so yeah, so so I'm in this for the long haul, and I'm going to be looking at all those different things and trying to decode all of that so that I can win, so that I can actually change policy, um, you know, and use policy to benefit real people so that they can have you know lives filled with opportunity. Um, to be able to manifest their highest potential because that's what this is about.
1: Kojo, this has been awesome. And thank you for spending time with us. I'm looking forward to even more great things from you in the future. And I know you're not going anywhere. Um, so I'm excited for all the things that you have coming coming forward and, and definitely keep in touch because I'm pretty sure it's not the first time or the last time we're going to hear from you um, in general and also on this podcast. So thank you so much again.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Appreciate you.
1: Man, that was an amazing interview with Kojo, and I'm excited that we had an opportunity to sit down with him. This is just the beginning. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more from folks in the tech industry, other folks in policy, or people who are data crunchers um, and love all things data, subscribe to the podcast. Also share it and let folks know that AI, the Ghost system, is here, and we're excited to have new listeners. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful day.